Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Robert Duran of Maison, Joseph Duran, on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Happy to be here and have a talk with you. You were born in 1933 in Paris. Yes, a good vintage, by the way. You would know that because later you ended up drinking a lot of older vintages with your adopted uh, father, Maurice Duran. Yes, my, my life is rather interesting. My parents, when I was born in Paris, they both were physicians, specializing on tuberculosis, and unfortunately they passed on when I was very young, five years old, and I came to Bonn and was adopted by my uncle, Maurice Drouin. So I practically spent all my life in Burgundy, in Bonn, under his guidance. Walking, I remember walking with him through the vineyards, he explaining the differences between uh, all these areas, what one should do, what one should not do, tasting with him in, 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 the, in the cellars. Also, these are wonderful uh, memories. So I had a happy family life. Your mother had been the daughter of Joseph Drouin, and her brother was Maurice. Exactly. Joseph Drouin was my grandfather, had two children, Maurice, my uncle, and Therese, who was my mother. You moved with your two siblings to Bonn, and Maurice adopted the, the three of you. Yes, we moved to Bonn in 1940, so we spent the war here. And after the war, 1945, I was 12 years old. Then I started really tasting uh, wine, and I began walking in the vineyards with my father. Maurice had purchased the Clos de Mouche, and also he had a parcel of Clos Vougeot at that time, but most of the property was in and around Bone. Yes, for obvious technical reasons. The land was cultivated with horses, and with horse you cannot go to more than two or three miles away. So he developed his estate in Bone, starting with the Clos de Mouche, but also Bone Grève, Bone Champignon, Bone Epnot, and others. And one day, I believe it's in 1928, he purchased a piece of land in Claude Vougeot. As he told me later, he said that's for prestige because it doesn't bring money. It's too far away to cultivate. Things have changed. 
He was also the sales representative on the export markets for Domain della Romanicanti from the 20s and even through into the 60s. Well, he had inherited the business from Joseph Drouin, who, as was the case in those days, was selling Burgundy, Côte du Rhône, Southern wines, various wines, even Bandiera wines. Uh, however, when my father stepped in, he quickly decided to concentrate on Burgundy, and uh, obviously he meant his goal was to have the best and the most prestigious uh, vineyards in Burgundy. He distributed Ravani Conti wines. At one point he had the General uh, Marimange uh, wines. He was uh, an interesting man, had intelligent, had many friends, and his repute for quality was so obvious, that's probably one of the reasons why the Romani Conti, Monsieur Chambon, Monsieur de Vilaine, both agreed to give him the exclusive distribution of his their wines for Burgundy and Belgium. They actually at one point offered him a half-partnership in the domain, but it was during a period of time when there were some difficulties. Mm, yes, that is... Uh, this is a sad story in many ways. My father, who had been a great friend to the American soldiers during World War I, in fact he was a liaison officer to General MacArthur, so a high position, and um, obviously, although he sp spoke German, he couldn't, obviously could not uh, wish that the Germany would win the war, and that the Germans could guess that. So in 1940... 1941, they came to arrest him in the fall, and he spent uh, seven months in prison. Fortunately, he was uh, liberated. So, early 1942, uh, Monsieur Chambon decided to sell his shares, and obviously turned to Maurice Drouin, or rather to his wife. She went to the prison, told him about it, now, what could he do? Being in prison, what would happen the next day? So, he uh, said, I'm sorry, I cannot uh, borrow the money, I cannot uh, take the risk for, for my family. So, he let it go, and it was later on purchased by uh, Le Roi. He was also a, a director at the Hospice de Bonne. He was uh, a member of the commission who directed the Hospice de Bonne, and later on came vice-president, in fact, uh, doing all the, the job as the president by law is the uh, mayor, Lord Mayor of Bonne, but doesn't lay, generally has not the time to look after the Hospice de Bonne. So the vice-president is really the, the sole and the guiding uh, factor of the Hospice de Bonne. He was passionate with the Hospice de Bonne, spent a lot of time. He tried and... Uh, and bring his skill to the estate. He sold, you may know that the Hospice de Bonne had a large estate given over the years, some very good areas, some poor areas. My father decided to try and eliminate the lesser areas and uh, had the Hospice purchased, replaced by only first growth. It was an interesting time to be buying vineyard parcels because it was the post-Phylloxera era. He started in 1919 with the company, and so vineyard land was often unplanted. Yes, that was, that was fortunate. 
it was uh, cheap, but it was not an obvious uh, decision because, again, it was it had to be cultivated with horses. All everything was done by hand, so it cost a fortune, and the production was in those days very low, much lower than it is uh, nowadays. And so the profitability was not obvious, but to him it was important. At one point he actually hid in the cellars of the Hospice de Bonne, is that correct? Uh, well, in 1944, the Germans tried and imprisoned in him again. He could guess that would happen. In those days we were living above the cellars, with a stair going down the cellars. And when at six o'clock in the morning the Germans knocked at the door, he quickly dressed, went down the cellars, to, in the cellars, and the Germans could guess who would do it, and they had blocked guards around the block. Four different streets. Fortunately, they did not know that the cellars had another escape on the fifth street. That was not far from the Hospice de Beaune, so quickly he had made plans for it. He went to the Hospice de Beaune and for three months uh, lived in the Hospice de Beaune in, uh, with all the kindness of the nuns in charge of the Hospice de Beaune. The part that might be hard to imagine about that if someone hasn't visited is that the Drouin cellars are underneath the town of Beaune and quite extensive and there's multiple entrances and exits and what is the main tasting room of the Drouin family and firm today used to be the Parliament building for Bone. Yes, it's uh, going through the cellars, is going through the history of Burgundy. It starts with the Roman. We can still see part of the old Roman wall built in 380. Then the cellars belonging to the Dukes of Burgundy. They had their Parliament house uh, there. It is still owned by us, and uh, then the cellars of the kings of France till the revolution, the cellars of the monks. So going through the cellars, one moves from 380 to 1250 with the monks, 1480 the dukes of Burgundy, and so on to arrive at present days. So it is fascinating to see. For us, it's important because it also contributes to bathe us in the, in the past. It helps maintain tradition. It helps uh, have examples of what was done in all these past centuries. And so what were the war years like for you, World War II, those years? What was that like for you personally as a child? To get the food, I remember going on a bicycle cycling through the farms around the, the city to try and beg for a few eggs, but that was more like a, a play. We also had uh, rabbits, uh, hens, and um, sure enough, we didn't know about chocolate and oranges, but we did not uh, mind. It was probably a difficult time for our parents, but nothing very special for us, except that we lived uh, the way our ancestors lived. Our plays were uh, certainly not in the, with computers in those days. It was uh, very, very simple, simple uh, plays like trying and catch uh, lizards or uh, play with some small animal, natural and animals. An interesting time. You told me one day you were going to school in 1945 and the sky turned completely black. 
Yes, it was uh, so black I can remember uh, this day. And this was in 1945. And following that, there was hell uh, throughout the court door. And following uh, frost in the spring, this is why the production of 1945 was so small and why the Romani Conti 1945 is so prestigious. In 1945, that was the last year where the production of Romani Conti was made out of old uh, vines which were not drafted as all the other vineyards were later on. Part of the reason you know that is because your dad was the sale agent for that domain and he would drink with you those wines at dinner. Uh, yes, certainly. After 1945, when I was 12, 13, 14 years of age, obviously every day at lunch there was a wine. We were authorized to sip it, later on to drink it, and it always the, we have we had to learn to remark about the wine. Is it red or is it white? Is it Gamay or is it Pinot Noir? Is it a wine of the Côte de Beaune or of the Côte de Nuit? Is it good? In which way is it good? And later on, my father would say, can you try and guess? Yes, it's a wine of the Côte de Nuit. Is it on the first growth or Grand Cru level? That's sort gradually I was uh, learning all the details. And the approach in those days was less technical than it is uh, nowadays, less uh, rational. We would not speak about the acidity, the pH, or the alcoholic content, but uh, more important about the finesse, the complexity of the wine, and the aging capacity, what is obvious to me even nowadays. And what was Maurice like as a person? He had a lot of charm. You know, it's difficult to describe uh, a father. I certainly now, even more than in those days, admire him. And if he was so well known in Burgundy and in the United States, it's due probably to his intelligence, his, uh, the way he could forecast the events. And on top of that, very, very kind. First of all, it was very kind of him to adopt all of a sudden three young uh, children. Uh, later on, as he was very thankful to the Hospice de Beaune for saving his life, he gave a part of his estate to the Hospice de Beaune. That's why there is a cuvée Maurice Drouin every year, which is on sale and which I try and buy when the price is not too, too high. And unfortunately, Maurice has suffered a stroke and was partially paralyzed, and you left your army service to come back and take over Maison Drouin at the age of 24. Exactly. Although after the, the war, after the baccalaureate, I went to university and try and learn about law, and then I went to Germany, studied more about literature, so that was far from uh, the, the wine. But all of a sudden, I had to go in to be a soldier, and I was, uh, I spent two and a half years in the army. Uh, an interesting experience. I was in Morocco during the war and even uh, at one point was in charge of the radio communication of the Légionnaire, la Légion étrangère. So an interesting uh, psychological uh, experience. 
During this period, however, as you just said, my father had a stroke, and when I was out of the army, rather than going to university to possibly learn about uh, geology, vinification, enology, and so on, I, all of a sudden, I was in charge of a company. Must say, however, that it was a fascinating, challenging, and I had good friends, or rather my father had good friends, and they were very kind to, to me. Monsieur Michel, who was in charge of the station Enologique, was a good friend, and uh, I constant, constantly uh, asked for his advice. The man in charge of our cellars, as usual, was a cooper, so he knew a lot about wood, and had the experience, 30 years' experience in, in the company, so he was very good to me and us. I already, my first trip to the United States was in 1961, another great experience from a technical point of view uh, about California and a commercial point of view to understand the approach. And here again, I always remembered what father, my father had said in those days, 19. 50. Americans were beginning to, to really discovering, well, the Americans were discovering wine, but they didn't know much, and stop, some of them still would blend Coca-Cola with, with wine. Some people in Burgundy said, why do you ship your best wines to the United States? Well, my father said, they may not know at the moment, but gradually, drinking good and good and better wines, they will learn. And this is exactly what happened. Again, the interest for Burgundy wines developed in the States for many reasons, possibly the quality of the wine, the fact that it came from a historical area, the mere fact that it was not easy to understand. And also, enology was beginning to develop in the States, and uh, all this contributed to the progress of the consumption. For example, you met both Robert Mondavi and John Daniel of Inglenook, right? Yes, again, they, they were good friends of my father, and I still have in my cellar some wines made by Mondavi and by Inglenook. And on my first trip to the States, I remember flying with John Daniel in his private small private plane over the hills. It has changed uh, a lot. Bob Manavi was fascinating. He who was passionate, he was uh, generous, he was curious, he constantly experimented, and what's more, he passed on his experience and the discoveries, I may say, he, he had. So that was uh, interesting. Also, this was the beginning of enology. In uh, France, the certification as an enologist started in 1955. So when I was in Burgundy in 1957, really this was the, the, the beginning of the knowledge. And um, in U.S., in uh, California in particular, I would say in those days, they were ahead of uh, Burgundy, at least, in discovering the specificities of, of wine. And being passionate myself, not having studied, I was so passionate that I read all the uh, magazines, the Journal of Enology of uh, Davis University. 
This shows that the experience, although I didn't learn at university, I gained from the experience of my parents, uh, my own experience over what is now 50 or 60 years. And for example, when you say it was really the beginning of analogy, that's right around the time they discovered what malolactic conversion was in wine as a process. Yes, you're quite uh, right. Malolactic in secondary fermentation. In the old days, one thought that, well, it's spring and everything is growing again, so there is a new growth in, in, the, in the wine, but no one didn't know about malolactic. And it started uh, then, uh, 1957. As I said, this was the beginning of the research and the knowledge on malolactic, and 1957 was a difficult vintage with a fairly high acidity content. Small story about it, Michel, the director of the Station Analogique, said it's a fermentation without oxygen, so don't rack off the wine. But I remember, however, one of our wines didn't start the malolactic fermentation. Our chef de cave said, if you allow me, Whatever Monsieur Michel said, I will rack it off with a little air. And suddenly the fermentation started. So it's another lesson that as long as the one does not know everything on a subject, one has to be very careful before applying uh, new rules. And another innovation that came in at that time was the tractor. That's where I'm fortunate. When you think of it after the war, uh, yes. We, had, we were cultivating with horses. We only used manure and sulfur, copper sulfate, in, in, the, in the vineyards. Everything was done by hand. And all of a sudden, I heard about tractors. Bouchard Perifis, large house in Burgundy, had one tractor. And I was second, I remember, experimenting with a tractor, something very small and light, easy to conduct uh, like uh, a car. Nowadays, it would be different. It takes half a day with all the technology of these engines to know how to plow, how to spray, and, and so on. So, yes, 1957-1960 uh, is the time when Burgundy really switched from, I would say, Middle Age to uh, the modern approach. We saw agricultural engineers, we saw enologists, so many things uh, changed. In the vineyards, uh, for instance, learning of these new rules, I try and plow more often. I spread with the new chemical molecules. I used fertilizers instead of manure. And certainly, immediately the vineyards were in better shape. Larger leaves, uh, heavier bunches, dark uh, green uh, leaves. So everything looked technically perfect. Adding to that the few changes in vinification, we had sounder uh, wines, very fruity, and maybe a little lighter. And it took me a few years to realize that the ones, yes, they were fruity, they were pleasant, they were good, but they were lacking character, lacking concentration, and probably would age too quickly. So I thought about it, and we stopped using uh, fertilizers. 
we tried and lessened the quantities of molecules, chemical products, and the result really appeared. On top of that, I should add, when we think of viticulture in France and in Burgundy, phylloxera arrived in France in 1856, and also diseases such as uh, oidium powdery milieu. So phylloxera arrived in Burgundy around uh, 1885, 1890. Fairly soon, one knew that by grafting on American uh, rootstock, one would uh, prevent phylloxera to kill the vines, and in a fairly short time, the whole of Burgundy was replanted, with a few exceptions, such as the Romane Conti. When you think of it, when the lifetime of a vine is 40-45 years, if it was replanted in 1900, 45 years later, that was after the war. So most vines were very old in those days. But to replant, it takes time, it's costly, and uh, the economy was not that good just after the war. So it's really only around 1960 that a lot of replantation happened in Burgundy, including in our estates. And again, I was very happy with the younger vines to have apparently healthier vines, more, more vigorous. So we replanted. It means that the wines produced in the, after the war were generally made from very old vines. And after 1960-70, let's say, very often of very young vines, the difference immediately was obvious. The production, the yield per acre, increased considerably. But it's a fact that the wines were then lighter, lacked structure, lacked possibly some personality, and um, would probably age more quickly. Some journalists thought that the mentality had changed in Burgundy. We were looking for just for quantity and less for quality, and we were looking for the profit. That was not the case. It was a natural fact. And naturally, gradually, uh, all these vines aged, let's say around 1980, 1990, again quite normal, uh, and the wine was... Uh, very good again with concentration. It was a matter of the vine age not being that old and at the time throughout the region that a lot of the vines were young and as they got older the wines then came out of that phase. Exactly. An old vine brings more tannin, more structure, more, more concentration. So nowadays one has to be careful to maintain a low yield uh, to have concentration. It's one of the secrets of the good producers, low production. And something else that was an outcome of having tractors is that you could cultivate vineyards that were more far-flung. So you yourself started a sort of a buying spree in the 60s, and you purchased Bonmar, Mousini, Leymarouz, Griot, Echezo, Grand Echezo, Batar Marche. Yes, I'm very proud and very happy of it. It was obviously fascinating uh, to develop an estate. It, was, it has become possible to cultivate 20 kilometers or even 
30 miles away, so I started developing the estate in the Côte d'Or, in, as you mentioned, uh, Musigny, Amoureuse, Bonnemar, Claude Vougeot, Grandet Chezot, Chambertin, Criotte, uh, Chambertin. I was fortunate to be able to do it. Also, in fact, starting around 1968, I thought of developing an estate in Chablis. Chablis was, the name of Chablis was known the world around. It meant a good, dry uh, wine made with Chardonnay. And uh, strangely enough, the cultivated area was very small, only 400 hectares, 1,000 uh, acres. Chablis had had a large production in previous centuries. The wines were uh, drunk in Paris, but after the phylloxera, as it is a risky area because of all the frost, very little was replanted, and competition came from wines produced in the Côte d'Or or in southern France. So many, many vineyards had been abandoned. But I thought there is a future in that area, and fairly quickly it was again possible. I developed an estate which is now 100, 120 acres, with Grand Cru, Les Clos, Vaudésir, and so on. Maybe we could talk about some of those signature parcels that you purchased during that period of time, and maybe some from before. So Maurice had purchased the Clos de Mouche, which is in Bone, and originally when he purchased it, he was making a red wine, but it was co-planted with white grape varieties, which was normal at the time. Yes, in those days, in, in a Pinot Noir, uh, you had Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, uh, Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Gris, which we called Bureau, in the same, same vineyard. Possibly this multiplicity of uh, vines contributed to the complexity of the wine. Anyway, after the phylloxera, after with all these new diseases, normally one should uh, spray, protect the vines differently. Uh, the Chardonnay, in particular, is very sensible to oidium, the powdery milieu, and we fight against it with uh, sulfur, which is spread. However, it's not necessary to do it on Pinot Noir. No, or not at the same time. So my father had a good idea. He thought, I'll have a, a small separate vineyard in the Clos de Mouge, just with Chardonnay. I will notice Chardonnay. We can't spray at the right time. And at the time of the harvest, we will harvest the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay, combine them, small proportion of Chardonnay, of course, in, in the fermenter. And that's the trick, which he did possibly for two or three years. Then one year, the Chardonnay was not uh, ripe at the time of the Pinot Noir, so he couldn't pick them at the same time. So what could he do? He made the two wines separately, and when he tasted the Chardonnay, the Claude Mouche Blanc, the first one he had ever produced, then he was amazed with the quality. He told me that a few months later, Monsieur Vaudable, who was the owner of Restaurant Maxime, came through the cellars to buy the wines he wanted. He tasted the Claude Mouche white and said, Oh, that's superb. I must 
have it exclusive for Maxim, which he had. So from there on, the the Claudimouche was sold at Maxim, and the repute uh, of Claudimouche White developed. In those days, it was exclusive. It was the only white bone. What would you summarize as the character of Clodimouche White and Red, if you were to talk about them as wines? Clodimouche White is located halfway, or nearly halfway, between Corton Charlemagne and Moraché. And in some ways, it has the quality of these two prestigious uh, crus. It has the uh, roundness, the richness of the Corton Charlemagne. It has some of the acidity, uh, hazelnut character of the uh, of the Montrachet. It ages uh, well. It's difficult to describe why is this wine good. It's difficult of any wine. It's easy to say of a white uh, Chardonnay. It has a hazelnut, chestnut uh, character. So I don't know how to describe it, but I could say it's good. And you know, I remember all these famous uh, restaurateurs, um, restaurant people who came to see my father. In those days, they wouldn't talk about the pH and so on. And the best compliment would say, that's good. Ça c'est du vin, that is wine. To describe, how could I describe Chambonne Musigny Amoureuse? This is possibly the wine I prefer in the Côte d'Or, not because of its of my estate, because I think it's that supreme elegance complexity. It's not dominated by the structure one may find in Musigny and which others may prefer. But complexity means that it is difficult to uh, describe. Complexity means that it is uh, in, in the nose, in the, in the smell, and in the aftertaste. This could lead to a question of what is a great wine, in which way is it better than another? First of all, when you think of a wine, the quality is of negative nature. A good wine is a wine which is not too acid, not too alcoholic, not too tannic, and so on and so on. But then the real quality comes from other factors which are difficult to describe. And then it also depends on, on the taste. There, there are definitely wines which are more on the light side and others more on the full-bodied structure nature. I tend to privilege the ones which are on the light side and to me the most important part is the, the smell. The smell and aftertaste. The smell then, obviously in the young wines you have the fruitiness, uh, but I prefer the old vines because it's more complex of dried fruit, of uh, decaying leaves, of earth, of tobacco, of exotic wood, difficult to describe. My children are very often better or have more imagination to, than I have to describe the wines, but complexity. And then in the aftertaste, that's when it is important. The complexity, uh, the length. Not long ago, one of my friends, who is a good expert in truffles, came home and asked if I would be interested to have tasting of truffles. Obviously, I said yes. So 
he came and he had different truffles from the same area and yet they were def different on the smell. And he explained to me, he would cut a small thin slice, he said, put it on your palate, stick it, if I may say, with a tongue on your palate and just apply to the truffle the same rules you apply to wine. The retro-olfaction to deliver the smell through the nose and see how long it, it, it stays uh, on, on your palate. So that is, uh, to me, again, it's a question of, of taste, the, the complexity, the complexity of the wines uh, of the center part of the Côte de Nuit, from Vaughan Ramanet to maybe to Claude Laroche, to my taste. This is where the most complex wines are to be uh, found. When we come back, Robert Duran explains the whys behind the Duran winemaking in Burgundy and elsewhere. The mistake to make, and some people uh, do in new wine districts, it's to try and imitate, copy what is being done in Bordeaux or in Burgundy. And rather than have this approach, the question should be, why do they do it in Burgundy? How do they do it and why? That's after this message. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash IDTT to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash IDTT for more information. Not only did your father do the first white bone, but he also, in terms of white wine, had a very important agreement with the Marquis de la Guiche that basically began in the 1940s. He became a good friend with the uh, la Guiche uh, family, purchased already some of their wines during the war, and starting with 1946, had an agreement with them to purchase their wines every year. So he purchased the wines. Then a few years later, at least when I arrived, I thought that rather buying the, the wine already pressed, it would be better to have the grapes delivered uh, to us. So we started picking the, the, the vineyard and making uh, the wine. And there was, uh, there was a great friendliness uh, between the Laguiche family and uh, the Drouin uh, family. They were very confident in us. 
the Marquis de la Guiche uh, and I would go through the vineyards. We would decide together of the cultivation of the of the harvest. I remember one day, just before the harvest, this was on a on a Friday, and uh, we were in the vineyards. The grapes looked uh, ripe, could be picked, uh, but then I thought maybe a few days more the wine will be better. However, the sky was dark, there was a risk of storm with hail, so a high risk. So the Marquis asked me, when do you think we should pick? I said, well, uh, I personally would run the risk, but uh, financially it's a big risk, so you have to make the decision. And he said, no, I follow your decision. So, and we picked on the Monday or Tuesday following uh, that Friday. Chose the confidence in the, we were on the same track, so it was easy. I uh, have never met one of the Marquis de Laguiche, and I know very little about the family. How did it come to be that they held that holding in Montrachet, that's such a substantial holding? The Laguiche family is an old noble family of France. Well, they owned the Montrachet Laguiche uh, since 1393. When you think of it, Morsac's 600 years is in the hands of the same family. They do not live in Burgundy. They have a chateau which is not that far away. They have tradition, so it's an interesting family to work with. And they used to own the old Montrachet. And uh, over the years, they didn't sell, but through heritage, it was uh, divided. And part of it was at the French Revolution. They emigrated uh, to save their life. Uh, one of their ancestors did not emigrate and was uh, beheaded. The property was sold as a national property. And the man in charge of the sellers at the auction could purchase five acres back. And uh, when the Langish family came, they said, I'm sorry, I could not buy it at all, but of course it's not mine, it is yours. When you think of uh, such a gesture, one can admire, but these are good lessons of uh, integrity. And this is when honesty, integrity is something very important. The ethic is important in a family. That's why I very much believe in family businesses. I have four children. And I'm very happy that uh, it's, I'm fortunate. All of them, four of them, are, all of them are in the company. Philippe, who, who, has a, who conducted financial studies, one day said, I'm not interested in more in finance. I want to look after the vineyards. Véronique, my daughter, is an enologist. Laurent is very outgoing. I don't know how express uh, that. So... He's our ambassador in the United States. And the last one, Frédéric, the youngest one, is uh, the head of the company. And I tried and pass on also now to my grandchildren to pass on the, the business, which is important. It, and it's important for not only for us, it's important for Burgundy, that there are families. It's true of Burgundy and other wine districts. Families are 
maintain the tradition and, and the passion. It doesn't mean that uh, how many nowadays, many chateaus in Bordeaux or estates in Burgundy, which are purchased by large financial companies. Well, in some ways I deplore that. They will look for the best. They will really try and hire the best agricultural engineer or the best enologist. They do, and the wines are good. But something is missing in the transmission of small details on the vineyards, on the story, on the typicity. It's the way of life. So earlier you mentioned that Le Marche can be noted for its freshness, and I think sometimes consumers think of it as a powerful white wine. But I've, when I've spoken with producers of Le Marche, they say it's a vineyard that can hold on to its acidity and often thus needs to be picked later. What's your experience of that parcel? It's a continuous uh, search. Should we pick it early and have enough uh, acidity, freshness, fruitiness, but maybe produce a, a simple wine? Should we harvest uh, later, have a, a wine of a high alcoholic content, uh, less acidity, rounder? It's possibly a question of taste, and it's always a difficult question with every, uh, every vintage. Uh, the answer is, is, and it is not an explanation, the answer is that it should be balanced. It should have enough alcohol. It should have structure. It should have tannin. Uh, it should have acidity, which helps the wine uh, keep. More hachet should be, it is obviously enjoyable when it, it is two or three years, but it's a pity to drink it then. When it is normally six, eight years old, to some people's taste, it's, it is at their best. Uh, we had a 1989, so the wine was, uh, when I had it, it was uh, 30 years old, and uh, the wine was absolutely excellent. On the other hand, I had another one, a younger vintage of a lesser vintage, and the wine was oxidized, and then it is a disaster, and so worrying. We would like our wines to be always perfect, and they are not always perfect. But when Moraché is at its best, it's really, it has always been said, it's the best wine of France with uh, Ikem in another category. One of the key purchases that you made in the 60s was that you purchased, as you mentioned, your, one of your really favorite crews, Léa Marouz and Chambon Mousseny, a parcel of Bonmar and a parcel of Mousseny. And how did that purchase come about? My father was buying, uh, when it comes to Musigny, Bonmar, uh, Amoureuse, my father was uh, buying wine from uh, an old lady who had inherited from uh, this area. I wouldn't say we became friends, but she had no children. So one day I would I suggested that I would to buy it from her, and she was happy to sell it to us. And I loved the wines which were produced. They were old vines which contributed to the quality. And the Musigny 61-62 we produced are still just fantastic, among the best we produced. We have replanted with the advantage that we have a multiplicity of clones, which were not available years ago. 
So the wines has retained, I believe, the, the complexity it, it should have. Why, all the wines of uh, Chambol Musigny are rather on the light side. They have a, a pleasant, uh, they are more feminine than masculine. It may not be, a, from a political point of view, good to use the word feminine and masculine, but in fact it contributes to complement it, it shows the specificity of each. A feminine wine is a wine which is elegant, which is uh, complex, which is more difficult to describe, while the masculine wine has more texture, more tannin, more color, and a more robust, different uh, approach. I love the wines of Chambol Musigny, but I, am, I have a vineyard I'm very proud of also. If I were to understand better, Musigny to Bonmar, you have parcels in both that were originally part of the same holding. How would you compare them as wines? Personally, I think the Amoureuse the, is the most uh, elegant of the three. Bonmar is the one which has the most structure and takes uh, some age to develop uh, its complexity. And Musigny, I would say, is halfway <laughs> Between Bonmar and Amoureuse, it has some of the structure of the Bonmar and the, some of the elegance of the uh, Chambol Musigny Amoureuse. It can also be different from one producer to another. Uh, for instance, Domaine de Vaugué. Vaugué is the largest producer of Musigny, uh, well-positioned vineyards, well-cultivated, uh, their wines generally have little more structure than the wines uh, we produce. Are they better? They probably think it. <laughs> they, they are. It's their approach, and mine is a bit different. But that's also what makes it pleasant in Burgundy, multiplicity of terroir and multiplicity of approaches, so that at least we can discuss uh, about it. One of my personal favorite bottlings from Drouin over a number of years is the Griot Chambertin, and that's a parcel that you purchased. An interesting purchase. I'm very, very happy I have it. It was, I don't know exactly why, but it was sold at the public auction. And the, this vineyard is located below the Chambertin Clos de Bèze and next to Chapelle Chambertin. I like it. Particularly, in some ways, I prefer Griot Chambertin to Chambertin. I suppose it's the same approach I mentioned on Musigny and Chambol Musigny Amoureuse. Chambertin has more structure, more body, it fills the mouth. Griot Chambertin is lighter and has, from the beginning to the end, a very linear approach uh, in, in the finesse. It keeps... Uh, as well, maybe, maybe age is a little quicker than uh, Chambertin. I never thought about it before, but it could be because it has a little less uh, structure. In conversations in the past, you've told me how much you like Vone, uh, which makes sense because you grew up drinking the wines of the Domaine della Romanicanti and you uh, developed a fondness for Latache in particular. And these days, Drouin makes a really superb petit mont from Vone Romanet. Petit Mont, yes, well, um, Petit Mont belongs to my daughter. In fact, when I purchased uh, the, the vineyard, I purchased it for Veronique. 
Véronique is uh, passionate with wine the way, the way I am. Petitmont is located just above the Richebourg of the Domaine de la Romani County. And uh, Véronique thinks that the quality of the Richebourg comes from the earth of the Petitmont, which over the centuries uh, gradually went down the slope. Petitmont is a typical von Romani wine. It has an earth body. Uh, it has complexity. I always use the word complexity because, uh, frankly, I don't know how it, to describe. Although I generally can recognize a wine of the von Romani area versus a wine of the Chambord Musigny or a wine of Gevray Chambertin. So they are uh, different. The wines from uh, Latache uh, to the Grands Echezeaux or the upper part of the Claude Bougeot have an extraordinary uh, character. Von Romani uh, Petitmont is not a Grand Cru. It is a first growth, but uh, in some ways worth the quality of a Grand Cru. Now that we've covered some of the parcels, maybe we could go over some of the history of the winemaking. And so uh, you mentioned earlier that the chef de cave originally when he began was a gentleman who was also a, a cooper and that was in keeping with the time and he was an older gentleman who explained to you a lot of things and then as the onological revolution happened and there became more trials and uh, schools and uh, bulletins and notices available you made a key decision which was to hire Laurence Jobard as your analogist. The Laurence Jobard uh, was the first woman in Burgundy to be in charge of a large estate. I would suppose uh, I selected her because of her palate, because she was looking for fitness, she was looking for the softness. Very often I think women have a better palate than men. They generally do not smoke. Maybe, however, they overreact to tannin. That's why they try and produce wines which are, which are soft, which have maybe less structure, which, which are always elegant. So it was uh, fascinating. If I was very busy traveling the world around. Yet, uh, whenever in Bonn, every day I would go to the winery around 10 o'clock in the morning and taste uh, with uh, L'Orange and uh, Gradually, obviously, our tastes combined, we had this exactly the same uh, approach. Now I do it less. Véronique does it with uh, Jérôme, who is in charge of our vineyards, and uh, I make sure that they also go well together uh, and taste uh, in the same direction. So it's important to, for Véronique to maintain the style of Drouin. You should think that a wine should not have a style, but obviously it has the style of the producer. And I hope our wines are elegant, complex, typical of their terroir, and typical of the vintage. This brings me the subject of uh, enology. Most producers the world around now go to university. And all of them, the world around, learn the, the same lesson. They know how to correct 
the wine and how in some ways to change the wine. You can play on sugar, acid, tannin, fining, yeast, temperature, and so on and so on. And obviously, an enologist tries and produces wine which has no defect. So, gradually, all the enologists have a certain profile, ideal profile of wine. Depending on the area, naturally, it is different. But here in Burgundy, they probably think the wine which is 13.2 in alcohol, a pH of uh, 3.25, and so on. Uh, we can measure so many parameters in, in wine that the risk now is that aiming at the best, the enologist in charge of the wine would try and compensate what nature has not provided. The good thing is, is that there are less poor vintages, but the risk is also that all vintages taste alike. In the past, the pleasure in blind tasting was to try and find out uh, where does it come from. Is it a, a basic wine, first growth, cru, and with vintage. Nowadays it becomes more and more difficult. All wines, when they are young, are fruity, and the difference in, a, in the wines is more in the one is fleshy, the other is not, and so on. By correcting the wine, I mean one uh, lessen the differences, which is not the ideal uh, for me. doesn't mean that I am critical of uh, enology, but at the same time, I insist uh, in our company that we do not try and correct too much a wine. We should maintain the typicity. One thing that you mentioned in there that I think is really key from an outsider's perspective as appreciating the Juron wines is the refinement on tannins and not having harsh tannins. Because if you compare to other wines of the 80s, some of them were going for a bigger, darker, more tannic style, and Drouin was not. That was uh, the time when uh, Parker, the journalist, had a strong influence on all wines in the world. He had a good palate, but he also has his personal taste. He was very honest, very sincere, but he was impressed by the freshness, structure, tannin of the wine. A wine which filled the mouth, to him, was excellent. Again, it's not our taste. It could be true in Bordeaux. The wines have more, more tannin than in Burgundy. In Burgundy, a normal wine is rather on the light, uh, light side. So the balance in vinification is in the, the time of the temperature of fermentation and the length of uh, the fermentation is one way to extract more of the wine. One may or may disagree on, on this, um, not in favor of uh, extracting uh, too much. But one also has to consider the commercial aspect, the approach of the consumer. I would not produce a Musigny the same way I would with uh, Chorel-et-Bonne. Chorel-et-Bonne is a small village next to Bonne on the valley floor 
it can produce a pleasant, fruity uh, wine. So when we produce Chardonnay, we look for this fruitiness. We bottle the wine fairly young so that it is uh, charming. When we think of Musigny, we don't think of the charm. We want the Musigny to be Musigny, which means a long-lasting wine, a wine which has enough structure to last and a wine which is complex. So generally, it takes longer. We keep it longer in the fermenter. We keep it longer in, in the wood. We could also have a little more new oak in a Musigny than in a Chauret, because in a Chauret the wood would dominate uh, the wine, and we don't want that. Uh, in a Musigny, it will never dominate the, the natural structure of the wine, and anyway, after 10 years, it would have faded away. So, again, nuances between villages, uh, not only between nuances between in the producers. I'm sure you have uh, known producers who would uh, love using a lot of new oak. I'm not sh too much. We have to consider the commercial approach. So at one time, maybe we started using a little more new oak than in the past, say, 20 years ago. And uh, now we are reverting. We are going down the other way with uh, no new oak for many of our wines and new oak for the red wines in particular and great vintages in particular. If you could kind of trace me the curve of uh, Drouin winemaking. So from the mid to late 60s, you started looking at maybe using steel, at doing a, maybe a two-day cold soak, and then maybe you could tell me more, and then how it's changed from then to now and what you do. Because now, for instance, you do open-top ferments. I think possibly the main change in vinification and the world around is temperature control. We have uh, stainless steel fermenters with uh, hot or cold water running around it. It's good. But here again, one has, it's the way it is used, which is uh, important. When we produce, say, a Chablis, we know the consumer loves the typicity, the mineral uh, character of the Chablis and the acidity, the citrus character. Now, one can enhance this character with special yeast or with cold fermentation. So, we have to be careful to remain true to the type of Chablis, and at the same time, if we can slightly enhance the true character, it is better. So maybe in Chablis, we have changed. Fifty years ago, we didn't have stainless steel, and we didn't know about the influence of the temperature. When it comes to the red wines, what did we change? In the 60s, 70s, I would say, looking for purity, stability of the wine, thinking the wines were shaped the world around. I was very careful with sediment. So, uh, with the guidance of some German enologist, we tried and filter the wines to eliminate all yeasts and bacteria. And the wines were stable. They were brilliant. But some critics said that the wines were then a little thin. I don't like critic, but I pay attention to what is said. 
and I decided they were right. So we abandoned this type of uh, filtration. When it comes to red wine, what has changed over the years? We always used new oak, but in the past we would scald with steam or hot water and even a pinch of uh, a handful of salt with hot water in each barrel. We would rinse the barrel to have a new barrel but eliminate the new oak fragrance. Then came the uh, fashion, if I may say, of new oak. So we also followed this fashion. Less than many uh, people, because we know that what is on fashion one day will be out of fashion. So certainly the percentage of new oak has changed over the years in our style. The time of the bottling may have changed over the years. Uh, in the old days, traditionally, the reds would be kept two years in wood and the whites one year. Then I loved the white wines in particular, which were bottled uh, early. It had so much charm, so much fruitiness. They were delicious to drink. So I started doing the same, not only with a Macon village, a Bourgogne, but also with a Puligny Montrachet or possibly a Claude Mouche. Means that not uh, after one year, but maybe only after nine months, possibly seven months, we would bottle the wine. Here again, after a few years, I realized the wines they tasted of Chardonnay. They were pleasant, but many wines in the world are unpleasant. And we wanted the wine to taste of Claude Mouche or Puligny Morachet or Merceau. So uh, we went backwards, and uh, now the Morachet, for instance, is generally bottled when it is 14, 15 months old. Uh, with the reds, what could have changed? What may have changed is the... Uh, the fining. In the past, all our wines were fined. Our white wines are still fined. The reds are not always fined. You see, I take care less in the fact that there could be sediment in, in the wine. That is, yes, when I think of it, that is really the big change. It could be that in the future, there will be sediment in our wines. Good sediment, which is the combination of tannin and, and, and color it falls at the bottom and it's not a it's not a problem just uh, maybe decanting the wine will help separate the sediment although the sediment is very good speaking about vinification you did an interesting experiment in 1980 and 1981 in that you had purchased in the 60s a very old hundreds of years old wine press and you made wine with that press which is near the church of bone the cathedral bone in 80 and then again in 81 and then you did a comparison of the same grapes vinified in a contemporary way with the grapes that have been made in the old way of hundreds and hundreds of years ago and i just wonder if you could kind of walk me through what you learned and observed during that process being fortunate to have this very old press in the 13th century building i thought will uh, it will be fun and interesting to make wine the old way. It means destemming with the hands, not with a machine, having all the grapes in a fermenter, not 
adding any yeast, doing nothing to the to the wine. And it took a few, nearly a week, for the fermentation to start. Our chef de cave was Laurence Jovard, was a little worried. They said, no, no, we do nothing. Fermentation started. Every day, naturally, with small buckets, we would uh, bring wine uh, from the bottom to, to the top. We would uh, mix the cap with the, with the feet, the old way, and then we would press on this very old press, which was made in 1576. And then, uh, during this, we thought we'd make uh, quite a few mistakes, too much aeration, and then the wine, we bring it in the cellars, the cellars are cold, what about malolactic fermentation, and what will be the result? At the same time, we made, as Claudimouche, we made some Claudimouche, the way we think is, is the best, let's say the modern way. It was interesting that after the fermentation, when the wine was a few months old, the wine made the modern way was red, had more structure, had uh, more fruitiness, the other one was lighter in color, lighter in body, slightly yellowish, but had more finesse. And uh, one year later, five years later, ten, twenty years later, the wine made that way is definitely more elegant and more complex than the wine made modern way. This was 1980, a difficult vintage. Still interested with the result, I thought we'd do the same in 1981. And it was a complete disaster. Another bad vintage, by the way, 1981. So the wine, well, very low in color, no structure, acid, unpleasant. So one lesson is already that certainly in the past there were many, many bad wines uh, made we could not accept nowadays. Since then, we have uh, made again wine like that, 1985, if I remember, somewhat successful, but we don't use uh, this, this press. Uh, I think we used it in 2000. The, frankly, the, the lesson again is that uh, one has to be careful not to try and overact as much as possible, one should let the, the wine ferment naturally. And it is only when it starts deviating, and we know it will, we know thanks to enology, that it will not be good, then we must uh, act. But yes, looking at the past, the combination of experience and enology. Part of the experiment was also about sulfur addition, right? In 80 and 81? We added sulfur. Yes, we added sulfur in the fermenter, but in the barrels we did not, we added less than uh, we do nowadays, and we added, added the sulfur in a different way, not in liquid form, just but by burning a small piece of, of sulfur in the, in the barrel. It makes a difference. You actually developed a whole project in Oregon that then served as a parallel to what you were doing in Burgundy. And you did that much earlier than other producers in Burgundy, so you were sort of a pioneer into moving into Oregon from a European perspective. I was the first one, the first Burgundian, to develop an estate in, in Oregon. It was partly by accident, 
but partly by passion, curiosity, and as a challenge. This was in 1986. My daughter had graduated as an enologist, and she wanted to be a trainee here or there, and in particular in the United States. And as we were friends to Bob Mondavi, she asked me, could you introduce me to Bob? Uh, could I go? And uh, there, I said, no problem, no problem. But at Mondavi is a large company. You will be a trainee among others. And uh, I have some friends in Oregon. It's a new wine district, small companies, uh, family businesses. I will ask one of them. So in 1986, I flew with Veronique to Oregon. We met David Lett and uh, David Adelsheim, two of the pioneers in Oregon, and they agreed to have Veronique. And uh, this was summertime, near the harvest, and the grapes looked healthy and ripe, full of color, juicy, mm, and I thought, my God, they should make good wines with that, and uh, I wish we had the same um, in, uh, in Burgundy. And um, I said to David, other time, it would be fun to have a piece of land and make wine here to see how it compares to Burgundy. That was it. One year later, in June, I was at Vinexpo. The phone rang. David Adelsheim on the phone said, Robert, I remember what you said, and there is a nice piece of land on sale. Would you like to buy it? Well, well, let me think for a while. Well, this is summer. I go on holiday in, in Oregon, and we look at the land. There is no urgency, no urgency at all in those days. So... I started thinking more seriously about it. Yes, it's a challenge. Yes, uh, I'm sure uh, it's good for the prestige of Drouin. Uh, if I am right, yes, it can be profitable. And it is so challenging to do it. So I said, okay, we purchased the land. And it has been a great experience in many ways. The mistake to make, and some people uh, do in new wine districts, it's to try and imitate, copy what is being done in Bordeaux or in Burgundy. And rather than have this approach, the question should be, why do they do it in Burgundy? How do they do it and why? So, I definitely wanted to grow Pinot Noir. That was not the question, because I know Pinot Noir. But then should it be high density or large space between the rows? Decided uh, kind of compromise, one meter thirty apart versus one meter in Burgundy or three meters in uh, California. Then I decided to, I thought, we have phylloxera in Burgundy. I would not like to have phylloxera, so we will graft the vines. And the producers said, why do you graft? It's costly takes time, and we have no phylloxera in Oregon. They said, you don't, do not have phylloxera, but there is phylloxera in uh, California. And one day, I don't know when, two years, three years, ten years, phylloxera will be here in Oregon too. I don't want to run the risk. And I grafted all my vines, and three years later, phylloxera appeared in Oregon. I, so I developed this estates, and uh, we started making a, a good wine. I should say Veronique started making a good, a good wine. 
I love this investment. I love, love people are charming there. They are simple. They are passionate. Uh, all these families. And I learned from their experience. I would hope I brought some of my Burgundy experience to them and helped them with developing, cultivating. But I also learned from them. For instance, green harvest was not the habit in Burgundy. Well, I brought this habit from Oregon to Burgundy, and now everyone does, uh, does the same. And possibly there are other examples, one way or the other. So exchanges of experience is uh, profitable to both parties. Green harvest was really something that you saw in Oregon and then brought back into Burgundy. Yes, because the one realized that the uh, high production is detrimental to quality. The production, the yield, depends on the on the vintage. It depends on the area. One can afford to have a, a higher yield in a Bourgogne than in, in a Musigny. The same way that the vinification would be slightly uh, different. Yes, it's a difficult decision because how many bunches should we leave on each cane? Should it be six, eight, ten? Uh, how many tons per acre should we aim at? And it would be fairly easy if we were close to the harvest to have to grape thinning end of July. So we still don't know. We know how many grapes we will have but we don't know how large, how heavy they will be. And there were two tastings that sort of catapulted your interest into organ reds, right? Yes, in 1979, the tasting, comparative blind tasting between uh, uh, French wines and American wines, between Burgundy wines and Oregon wines. And uh, the American wines came first ahead of Burgundy. So I was furious. I thought it's badly organized. Let's do it again with my, and only my wines, against the ones which are supposed to be the best of Oregon. And we won. But number two was David Lett Oregon wine. So this certainly was at the back of my mind when I decided to develop an estate. And by the way, this tasting in 1979 shows that in a blind tasting, one pays more attention to the fullness, fleshness of the wine than to the elegance, complexity, and, and the length. This is why, in many ways, I'm not too much in favor of blind tasting. Or, yes, comparing wines of the same appellation, same area, and of different growers. Then it is, and I like to compare my wines with, uh, with others, but it has to be done at the same time. It's difficult for a master of wine uh, who goes in a cellar, tastes the wine, then next day come to my cellar and the following in another one. Even with a good memory of the wine, of the wine it is difficult to compare and try and rank which is the best wine. A blind tasting one should should not be completely blind, blind. To hear more about those blind tastings that were held in 1979 and 1980, but from the perspective of the Lett family in Oregon, I want to bring in here a clip from Jason Lett's interview. 
Jason spoke about those same two tastings and the ramifications of the results for his family and for the area. Jason's dad, David Lett, made the 1975 Pinot Noir that placed second in the bone tasting in 1980. So we have a particular block of grapes. It's a tiny block. It's only 10 rows. It is surrounded by other plantings of Pinot Noir. This is actually, compared to the original vines from 1965, uh, a little bit of a later planting. It's 1968. And Dad designated that the South Block. So Dad is tasting these barrels in the winery and just realizing there's something special about these 10 rows that sets them apart from the rows that are planted you know, immediately adjacent to this. And for him, it's this eureka moment. We're all used to the conversation about Burgundy where you see these hard lines between greatness and average just in the space of a few feet. And the same seemed to be happening at Irie. And so Dad designated that wine separately. He called it the South Block Reserve. And he had this kind of crazy short American lady who was selling him barrels from Burgundy at the time. Her name was Becky Wasserman. And he gave her some of those bottles of South Block and she took them back to France and sat on them for a while. And then she was invited to be a judge at a wine Olympics that was sponsored by a French food magazine called Go Mio. And she entered those bottles into the wine Olympics. And in the Pinot Noir category, our dinky little tiny plot of 10 vines placed in the top 10 out of a lot of wines from around the world including some from Burgundy. And it was a startling result. But maybe not entirely unpredictable because the wines in that Paris tasting, the Burgundies were a department store label. Sort of Negos wines. So, interestingly, and to his credit, Robert Drouin restaged the tasting the next year in Bone with his own wines and the same judges. So Becky got to go back and be a judge again. And in that second tasting... The top wine was 59 Chambon Musigny, which scored 70 points. And the second wine was Irie 1975 South Block, which scored 69.8. And then 61 Chambertin Clos de Bez with 66 points. It was a startling result. And it got Irie written about in the New York Times. It was national and international recognition that there was something going on in Oregon. So the impact of that press might have been fairly short term, you know, the sort of the three month period of excitement and then back to the grind again, except that we suddenly started like experiencing this wave of curiosity from Burgundy. Growers from Burgundy coming here to visit in the early 80s, including and especially Robert Drouin and his daughter Veronique. Veronique came and worked for us for a harvest in 1986 and also with Adelsheim and Bethel Heights. And then in 1987, I stayed with the Drouins and got the opportunity to work in their cellar. And actually while I was there, Robert told me that they had finalized purchase on some land just right up the hill from my parents. And I have to say that the effect of those tastings in Paris and Bone the resonance, the long-standing positive result of that was not the press accolades. It was the presence of the Druan family who brought so much credibility to what we were doing here. 
I want to take a moment here to emphasize the similarities in the style and approach behind David Lett's wines from Oregon and the Drouin wines, especially back in the period of the 1970s and 80s. Remember what Robert Drouin mentioned earlier in this interview about the approach to Pinot Noir at Drouin in Burgundy in terms of less extraction, more elegance, lighter color, and more stability. And then listen here to how Jason Lett sums up his dad's mindset at the Irie Vineyard at that time. He always felt like there's a real kind of lack of sophistication in Americans about understanding what Pinot Noir is. You know, we judge books by the cover, for better or worse, and we judge Pinot by the color. And he felt like that was definitely for the worst. You know, he said that in Pinot Noir, color and flavor exist in an inverse ratio, which means that his color goes up, flavor goes down. That's an interesting thing to say, because if you're trying to extract color from Pinot Noir, the best way to do it is by raising the temperature of the fermentation. And if you've made soup, you know that the best time to throw in the herbs isn't when you start making the soup, but right at the end, because those volatile aromatics can get boiled off by the heat of fermentation. And so he liked short, cool fermentations that didn't lock in a lot of color, but what color there was was very stable. You know, you won't see a lot of sediment at the bottom of an old bottle of Irie because the color that went into the bottle was there to stay. Perhaps this similar sensibility and approach to Pinot Noir influenced Robert Drouin's decision to buy vineyard land near Irie in the Dundee Hills. If you look back at the results of the 1979 Gomio tasting in Paris, it wouldn't necessarily follow that the Irie Pinot Noir was the one you'd want to pursue. The Irie placed in the top 10 of that tasting, for sure. But the number three wine, much higher up in the results than the Irie, was a 1975 Pinot Noir from Hoffman Mountain Ranch in California. I personally often think of a bigger, darker style of Pinot Noir as becoming popular with Americans later, like in the 1990s. But as Steve Dorner of Kristen Vineyard said in his interview, even back in the late 1970s, there was a real fashion for a bigger style of Pinot Noir, and Hoffman Mountain Ranch Pinot Noir was a prime example of that. 78, there was not that many people in the game, and the style that was favored, I think, were the ones that were the big, even then, it was bigger style, you know. Santa Cruz Mountain Vineyard, Hoffman Mountain Ranch, uh, you know, they had a lot of alcohol, a lot of color, and that was kind of hard to achieve with Pinot Noir, so they thought that was good. It's worth proposing that it wasn't so much the differences, but rather the stylistic similarities between the Irie Pinot Noir of that period and the Drouin Burgundies that prompted Robert Drouin to make his first vineyard purchase in Oregon. Although I can imagine that Robert might disagree with that assertion. We'll be back with more from Robert Drouin right after this. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, 
as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Later, the Drone Company would purchase even more land in Oregon and really kind of double down on that investment, which was large to begin with and then became even larger later. And so in that period of time, what did you see as the development of Oregon wine from your perspective? First of all, in, uh, in the 80s, most Oregon wines were technically poor wines. They didn't know how to make wines. They had good grapes. When tasting them, very often I would say, ooh, the wine could have been good, but it's sad that it is like this or like that. Well, obviously this has changed a lot. All the growers now have the technical knowledge and the, all the wines are technically good. I think Oregon really deserves the repute it, it has gained for uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. It's easier with Chardonnay because Chardonnay, it's easy to make a Chardonnay wine the world around. It has, it has more or less alcohol, it's more or less uh, fruitiness. Uh, but with Pinot Noir in particular, it is uh, different. Oregon has a good climate, cool nights, uh, so there is enough finesse. But one still has to discover which are the best areas, if they are best areas in, in Oregon. I have the experience that uh, some years ago, very happy with the uh, success of DDO Domaine Drouin, Oregon, I decided to purchase another estate which was on sale. This we did in uh, 2014. It's uh, 30 miles south of the, the other estate. The first estate is in the Dundee Hills. The second is in the Amity Eola Hills. The soil is slightly different and the wines are different. And I'm happy that they are different. In the northern part, the wines is uh, soft, rather light, elegant. In the southern part, Rose Rock is the name of the estate. The wine has more color, little more structure, not more complexity, but it is different. So over the years, I'm sure Oregon will gradually uh, develop the knowledge of uh, different areas, best areas, and how to make the wine of these areas. Were there things that surprised you about growing grapes in Oregon that you hadn't realized until you started your own projects there? In many ways, it's easier to cultivate in Oregon than in Burgundy. Because the weather is, the profile of the weather is more consistent. It rains a lot in winter, but the summer it is fairly dry compared to Burgundy. So it's easier to have um, organic viticulture in Oregon than in Burgundy. Uh, less uh, spraying, I wouldn't say it's easy, but uh, less botrytis, yeah, less diseases. So it's easier to have healthy grapes. Uh, it means that the wines are fruity, have generally more color, possibly a little more structure than Burgundy wines. When it comes to Burgundy, well, you know where my heart is, so 
I won't give you the precise answer. You mentioned organic farming in the Oregon context, but that became increasingly a concern of yours in the Burgundy context as well, right? I'm very happy. I may have explained that I have four children. The oldest, uh, Philippe, passionate with wine, started uh, guiding our Burgundy estate in 1988. And from the start, he was convinced that we should we should try and use only natural products, less uh, chemicals. And uh, I completely agreed with his approach, thinking maybe it's more costly, more risky, but it's natural, it's, it's, it's natural. So, and maybe the quality of the wine will be even better. So starting 88, and there were very few people in Burgundy, we started uh, developing organic viticulture. Uh, the good producers, Anne-Claude Lefebvre, uh, Roumier, uh, uh, Meursault, Lafon, many producers. Uh, the difference with the past, in the past all these producers would never meet. Now they exchange their ideas. Philippe is a friend of all these uh, good producers, so they together exchange their experience on an organic viticulture. And we are... Uh, we are happy with the result. I cannot confirm that the wine is better for that. I would say that naturally uh, the yield is lower. Maybe this is good for the quality. I know it is more risky. I know in Chablis we also have uh, organic viticulture. A few years ago the, there was so much pressure of uh, mildew and oidium that we had to abandon organic viticulture. And we know when we abandon, then for quite a few years, we cannot say it is organic viticulture anymore, because it has to be conducted that way for at least three years before one can be rated as organic viticulture. I think there have been changes that Philippe has introduced and that you've introduced as well in your respective careers, but what would be in general the vineyard work for the Cote d'Or vineyards for Drouin? in terms of row spacing, rootstock, and vine material? What's normal these days? When it comes to spacing, we follow the tradition. It's one meter apart. When it comes to clones, uh, it's a combination of selected clones and sometimes selected rootstocks or selected clones of rootstocks. One can go that far. Organic viticulture. And even we experiment with biodynamic. Sometimes a controversy with Philippe is very much in favor of it. I'm not sure that it is good. But anyway, it's good to experiment. And the, again, the risk is only financial, so it's worth experimenting. And certainly it doesn't damage nature, so we have to think of the, of the future. Do you propagate from the bone clot mouche? Do you take vines from Clodomouche and propagate them into other vineyards? Ah, yes, you're right. That's something, and it is important. We, over the years, we have maintained our own nursery. We select vines from our old vines. We go in the vineyards and we mark the vines which we think are healthy and they look particularly nice, and nice bunches, not too large, not too small, 
and so on, and we try and multiply uh, these. So that's possibly one thing which is different from other growers. And for this uh, selection, when I think of the Clodimouge, we maintain one Chardonnay vineyard which was planted in 1935. So, again, the idea is to maintain the style, the typicity of the Clos de Mouche, and not uh, deviate uh, from it. And was there ever a history at Drouin of co-fermenting Pinot Bureau with the red? We maintain in our vineyards some uh, Pinot Gris. The Pinot Gris is a Pinot with a very little color, but it was always Pinot Gris in the old vineyards because it, it brings uh, more sugar content, it has a lower acidity level, and the, in the very old days, the wines of Burgundy had a lot of structure, were rather low in alcohol, and so this would help uh, compensate. So, by tradition, we have some white some uh, Pinot Gris in our uh, Claudie Mouche. Just that wine? It wouldn't be the Gris Otter? No. Okay, okay. No. Just wanted to make sure. So you're somebody that has a real expert knowledge of old vintages from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and Burgundy from personal experience. And so I was wondering if we could touch on some of those vintages. Uh, it's true. I'm fortunate to have... Uh, started my experience with the wines of the, let's say, of 1934-35. After the war, the wines we were tasting, and again many of the Romani Conti area, uh, were the 1935, 1938, and so on. Yes, 1938, I had great wines of 1938. The lessons I I remember 1937, for instance, a very good vintage. But my father took it as an example of a, of a wine. The wines didn't have much charm when they were young. They had a lot of tannin. And my father said, one has to be careful. It's the type of vintage. One drinks it when it is young. One says, oh, let's wait another five years. Five years later, same thing. Mm, it's improved, not good enough. Yet, 10 years, 20 years later, maybe the wine will be gone and will never have been really uh, perfect and pleasant. So, such a lesson I applied, I remember, to 1976, some ways to 1983. Uh, in other words, I thought, aha, 1976, a great vintage, a lot of tannin, not much charm, not much fruitiness. One should not keep it too long in the fermenter, not too long in wood, and one should fine it a little more than usual. And that, I think I was successful doing so. Vintages are always a, a lesson. Not that long ago, I had a Latache 1944. 44 is considered a poor vintage low in alcohol, very light uh, in every way. And the wine was so complex, so elegant. Again, in, from the beginning to the end, and lasting long, long time in. So, the finesse at its, uh, at its best. To me, I'm fortunate to be exposed to great wines 
great vintages. So I can be interested with a wine because it is good, because it is great. But when there is something to talk about, to think about, that is where it is interesting. When we taste the wines, when I taste wines, particularly with Veronique, as she is in charge of maintaining the, the style, we love to exchange our taste, our experience, and try even now to explain in which way I prefer one vintage to another. There are some vintages where practically all wines are good. I think I could name 1959, possibly 1989, 1985, 1978. These are great vintages. More often, in a given vintage, good or bad, it depends on the producer. In a good vintage, you can have poor wines. In a great vintage, uh, superb, superb wines. Vintages, to me, when opening a bottle of an old wine, it's not only the quality of the wine, it's the remembrance of what happened in this particular year, either in Daly's life or political uh, event. It's the viticulture, particularly of the wines I produced before, let's say, 1988, before my son stepped in. Then I remember really all the details of the frost, of the diseases, and, and so on. So, well, we are in Burgundy, we live with, with wine, and uh, opening a bottle is not just uh, appreciating quality. Particular vintages that have stood out for me amongst your wines were 83 and 85. Do you have particular memories of those two? There were not that many great vintages in the 80s. Starting, with, let's say, with 1960 again, I would mention the 61, 62, 69, 78, 85, 89, 90. Well, it's obviously when I think of all these uh, vintages, let us think of 1993. I don't think the repute is that great, and yet... Whenever I taste, at least our wines, maybe we were particularly successful, but all of them are just, just delicious now. So 2003 is uh, also on the rather light side, but the wines are typical Burgundian. So it's difficult to speak of a vintage or to decide to rate a vintage. Ah, when I think of vintages... Obviously, I have to go back to the past. My parents, Maurice Drouin, they were married in 1911. A great, apparently a great, great vintage. So, as was usual, they laid a few bottles aside. And I still have some 1911. And it is just superb. I also am fortunate to have few bottles. I think I now have two bottles left of 1856, Musigny, the first one was Musigny, 1911, the next one was Musigny, 1856. Some ten years ago, we had a special private family meeting, and I thought we would have, uh, we would have these two wines. 1856, I was told, was not a great vintage, but a decent, good vintage. The wine was 
it had not been the cork. I don't think the cork had been changed. The wine, the wine was very light in color, very light, had an excellent bouquet, which faded very quickly in the glass and on the, on, on the palate. But think of it, a wine which is 150 years old, it shows that here again the complexity, the essence of, of the wine is at its best. And it doesn't mean we should wait that long to drink all the wines we produce. Nowadays, commercially, it, uh, it would be difficult. But speaking of the age of the wines, for obvious commercial reasons, financial reasons, wines are sold and drunk very young nowadays. It explains that one, the consumer, and then us as producers, we look for the charm and the fruitiness of the wine. But it's only with age that the complexity would come if the wine is, is of a good origin. Age, a wine which is 10, 20, 30 years old, sometimes it is disappointing. It is oxidized. Maybe it has not been well kept. But when it is uh, still decent, uh, it's so so interesting, so fascinating. Are there things in your career that turned out differently than you would have expected when you first got started? When I think of Burgundy, progress, definitely. Progress going up, then backwards, changes. One has to be careful with new discoveries. One has to experiment what is new one day will be part of tradition if it is uh, something good. This is why I'm happy when I am with my children, with Philippe in the vineyard, and he has a problem. He would say, what would you have done? Uh, so chose that uh, combination of tradition and experience is the secret to progressing. When I think of my parents, I think I was very fortunate, very fortunate to be trained by my father. Robert Duran has seen a career that he feels in hindsight was mostly quite lucky in the history of Burgundy. Thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you. I'm happy if I could pass on some of my love of Burgundy. Thank you. Robert Duran of Maison Joseph Duran in Burgundy in France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.
Some of the questions and commentary in this episode wouldn't have been possible without the resources on Burgundy that were provided by Clive Coates during his lifetime and by Jasper Morris still today. I would recommend either of those authors to you if you would like to know more about the Drawn Wines from Burgundy. I also want to cite the work of Neil D. Holkauer, who has written about the 1980 tasting in bone for both winesearcher.com and for the Journal of Wine Economics. Further, there's an entertaining read about the Gomeo tasting written by Terry Robards and published in the New York Times in October of 1979. And I remember in the old days at home, we would always keep the sediment and this would be used to make this cocova uh, red wine sauce. It's red wine sauce made with sediment. Romane Conti sediment is excellent. <laughs> 